Behind the polished facade of these wellness mumfluencers lies fear, anxiety, and a hypervigilance on health, to the point that it permeates out and infiltrates the subconscious of the hundreds and thousands of people who hold these women up as positive parenting role models. The cute jokes, the cool hair, the pretty exterior that tricks us into believing that what we are being sold is actually good for us is particularly pernicious. But when what is considered the pinnacle of healthiness has hallmarks of disordered eating, fear-mongering, rigidity and anxiety around food, where does this leave us? Hey and welcome to Can I Have Another Snack? I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. We're having conversations about how we nourish ourselves and our kids in all senses of the word, in the hellscape that is diet culture. So I was looking through my stats for the podcast to try and figure out what you all like and what kind of topics you enjoy, what kind of guests, and to just generally suss out what works well for the podcast and what I can offer more of. And I noticed that one of the most popular episodes was from season one, where I read out one of my essays. It was my essay called Sweet Little Lies, which if you haven't read or listened to, I'll link to it in the show notes. But it got me thinking that it would be cool to periodically record some more of these essays so that you can listen to them if that's easier or more accessible to you than reading. So today I'm sharing my essay called The Kids Standing in Clean Eating's Long Shadow. It's by far the most well-read essay on Can I Have Another Snack. I published it in January this year, but it was something that I was inspired to write about based on a post I saw by Ella Mills back in Halloween, um, so that this would have been Halloween 2022, where although she claimed not to be judging you for giving your kids sweets on Halloween, there was a distinct whiff of judgment And I wanted to really unpack that because it felt like a real throwback to the language and the moralization of food around the time of clean eating. Even though she and others who had built a brand on the principles of clean eating were really distancing themselves from that vernacular, despite having all the hallmarks of clean eating in their brand. And what's more, these people who had popularized clean eating now have kids and have a huge audience of parents. And some of the messages that are being shared are really fan the flames of anxiety, worry, and fear about what our kids are eating. This is both counterproductive to a positive relationship with food, but also just doesn't have a good grounding in nutritional science. So I'm going to read that essay in just a second. But first, I wanted to remind you that for the month of March, I'm running a one-off spring sale on Can I Have Another Snack? So subs are 20% off for this month only. If you subscribe, you'll pay £4 a month or £40 for the year. So that's a total bargain. And I'm not going to run a deal this good for the rest of the year. So now is the time to cash in. If you've been sitting on the fence, it's time to make your move. As a paid subscriber, you'll get loads of cool perks like access to our Thursday community threads, Snacky Bits, where we shoot the shit about all things anti-diet parenting and figuring out our own feelings about food and bodies. You'll get my monthly Dear Laura column plus one other exclusive responsive feeding or gentle nutrition related download or article at least once a month, plus commenting privileges and some other bonuses that I'll throw out there. 
Subscriptions help make this work sustainable and keep Can I Have Another Snack free of SpawnCon and ads and make me less beholden to an algorithm. I'll put a subscription link in the show notes. You can also gift a subscription to a friend or a family or a coworker and get that same deal of 20% off. And remember, if you want to sign up with some pals or your NCT group from like five years ago, you always get 20% off of a group subscription. All right, team, here's my essay, The Kids Standing in Clean Eating's Long Shadow. Jenny Mullen is a cool mom, TM. The Dictator Lunch's author rocks effortlessly beachy waves, makes frequent dick jokes, and unlike the new wave of gentle parents, isn't afraid to lie to her kids about hiding veggies in their muffins. Her whole shtick is that you can make your kids' lunchboxes super healthy and something they actually want to eat. She's also married to Jason Biggs. Yes, the Jason Biggs of American Pie fame. He makes frequent cameos on Jenny's Instagram where he's portrayed as the antithesis of a cool dad. And it's all very funny and entertaining. Except for one thing. Jenny has some interesting ideas about food. A little closer to home, where Cool Moms, TM, are switched out for Yummy Mummies, TM, twee, beautiful, concerningly thin, we have Ella Mills, the relatable girl-next-door entrepreneur behind Deliciously Ella, a sprawling enterprise that spans an app, products in most UK supermarkets, a deli, and a series of best-selling cookbooks. She's also a parent to two small kids, and the daughter of the heiress to the Sainsbury's supermarket fortune, and a former Labour MP. Her parents are estimated to be worth £40 million, just FYI. She also has some interesting ideas about food. Although very different, these women represent something similar. Both have consciously and deliberately distanced themselves from explicitly claiming clean eating, despite all the tenets of clean eating being front and centre of their brands. And now, they're bringing kids into it. Let's back up for a second. For anyone who was checked out from about 2013 to 2018, this was the era of clean eating, a style of eating that could be filed along with wellness, popularised by health and fitness influencers, nutritional therapists, not to be confused with a registered nutritionist, and well-being experts who had questionable qualifications and made dubious claims about the benefits of their style of eating. Clean eating wasn't a single unified approach to eating. In fact, nobody could really seem to agree what was and wasn't permitted under the laws of eating clean. Some people, such as the aforementioned Ella Mills, who at that point went by her maiden name, Woodward, espoused the benefits of a plant-based diet. Melissa and Jasmine Hemsley, on the other hand, were pretty adamant that you needed bone broth, grass-fed beef, and ghee to heal your innards. There was a thread that whole unprocessed foods were good and that anything made in a factory was evil, but that protein powders and superfood blends, which are ostensibly processed, are actually okay, and sugar was definitely going to kill you, unless it was natural and unrefined, in which case, go nuts. The only thing that anyone was united on was almond butter. The rules of clean eating were confusing, conflicting and contradictory. It wasn't long before nutrition professionals with legitimate bona fide credentials started expressing concern with what they were seeing on social media and in women's health magazines. 
unnecessarily restrictive diets, leaving their target audience, usually young, still developing girls and women, vulnerable to disordered eating and malnutrition. Yes, malnutrition. Something we associate with countries in the global south where food poverty and undernutrition are major causes of death and disease. Here in the UK, the flavour of malnutrition was slightly different. For example, clean eaters were fond of making their own homemade plant-based milks, eschewing both dairy and commercially made plant-based alternatives under the auspices that processed is bad, and as a result, missing out on key nutrients, iodine, calcium, and vitamin B12, to name a few. This led the Osteoporosis Society to initiate a campaign highlighting the risks of strict clean diets on bone health, with particular concerns over fractures and the long-term implications for developing osteoporosis. But outside of the risk of developing specific nutrient deficiencies, there was something else here, something more sinister. Clean eaters made clean eating their whole M.O. Entire industries, including wellness events, boutique gyms, and clean eating cafes, sprung up to fortify the legions of clean eaters when they weren't posting pictures of their meals on Instagram. Not only was it big business, it was being normalized, mainstream. Disordered eating was slipping under the radar, masquerading as healthy, and often lauded for encouraging people to eat more veggies while putting its devotees at serious risk. Hundreds and thousands of young women who believed they were making intentional choices for their health were in fact developing an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, an eating disorder known among eating disorder professionals as orthorexia nervosa. Although some debate exists around the symptoms and diagnosis of this condition, most agree that the drive for perfection in eating leads to anxiety about food, social isolation, and other agonizing mental health problems. Physically, it can lead to nutrient deficiencies, irregular or complete loss of menstrual period, thyroid issues, gastrointestinal issues like constipation, diarrhea, and bloating, plus many of the other concerns we see in more traditional eating disorders. All of this can occur with or without weight loss. Worryingly, wellness influencers often suggest cutting out more foods like gluten or dairy and further restricting the diet in order to treat these symptoms, ultimately compounding the issue. Studies conducted at the height of clean eating showed that of people who engaged in clean eating communities on Instagram, around 90% met the diagnostic criteria for orthorexia nervosa. As concerns mounted about clean eating's promotion of disordered eating and the subsequent impact on followers' mental and physical well-being, clean eating pioneers began to distance themselves from the moniker, many claiming they never, ever used it in the first place. Uh-huh. Clean eating Alice went back to using her regular name, Alice Living. Ella Mills appeared in a documentary for BBC Horizons exploring the harms and false claims made by the movement she helped to popularise. She reportedly deleted any reference to clean eating from her blog. And former clean eaters came forward to describe how the trend masked their eating disorders. Nutrition professionals started vocally discrediting clean eating and instead promoting intuitive eating and health at every size. Hi, it's me. As a means to heal your relationship with food and bust out of wellness culture, which was just a fun little offshoot of diet culture. By 2019, a slew of anti-diet books were published, including my first book, Just Eat It. 
and the publishing industry were publishing people with actual nutrition qualifications, such as registered dietitians Rosie Sant and Helen West of The Rooted Project. And then, it seemed, the world moved on. At least that's what I thought, until I saw this post by Ella Mills, the day after Halloween. Mills goes on to attack Halloween sweets and candies, labelling them as poisonous, non-foods that are addictive and full of shit. Nice. I'm just going to read out the post on Ella Mills's stories, which says, Navigating the madness of the food culture we live in as a parent, Sky saw Halloween trick-or-treating on TV and was so desperate to go. We did, and it was so sweet to see them so excited. We let them keep a couple of chocolates and then put the rest back in in a bucket in order to give other trick-or-treaters. No judgment, but my goodness, no wonder we're so unwell as a society. These are like poison. They're not food. They're so addictive and just full of such shit emoji. I'm all for treats, ice cream, pizza, cookies, chocolate, cake, and a healthy mindset, but just not into these. The fact that these ultra-processed non-foods... Our normal part of our culture is nuts when you think about it. They only contain ingredients that harm us. Sad face. In the post, Mills isn't so much insinuating as outright stating that convenience foods are tainted, poisonous, and by extension, unclean. They're unfit and unsafe to give her children, but she will happily dole them out to other people's kids. She then goes on to make a reductive argument about the role these foods play in our collective well-being, ignoring the well-documented impact of the social determinants of health, something her enormous privilege shields and protects both her and her children from. And from a more nuanced take on health, um, I will link to an article that I wrote about what really impacts our health. How is a parent supposed to feel about feeding their child Haribo or a Milky Way when confronted by something like this? Because make no mistake, she is judging you if you feed those foods to your child, despite proclaiming no judgment. And the cakes, ice cream, and other treats she's referring to aren't Mr. Kipling or Ben and Jerry's. They are undoubtedly the kind that have had a healthy makeover, so as to live up to her stringent, pure, and clean standards of what constitutes a food, such as her chocolate chip cookies made gluten-free and using coconut oil, or her chocolate cake made using almond meal and coconut yogurt icing if we can even call it that. Even when she is advocating for balance, it's predicated on the idea that you should be eating whole foods made from scratch under your own unpaid labour. And should you not have the resources or inclination to engage in such activities, then you are effectively poisoning your child. There's also a blatant classist element to all of this. Deliciously Ella's peanut oat bars contain 10.6 grams of sugar per bar. The second ingredient after oats is brown rice syrup. This is a pseudonym for sugar. It also contains date syrup and coconut sugar. Despite sounding natural, and thus appealing to middle-class fantasies of what constitutes a real food, they are, in effect, identical to table sugar. For reference, a Kit Kat has 10.2 grams of sugar per bar, and that almost certainly wouldn't constitute a food in Ella's mind, because it's widely available and accessible to poor people. There is, of course, a huge cost differential between the two, too, with Deliciously Ella's bars costing 60p more per 100 grams than a Kit Kat. And since we're at it, Deliciously Ella's line of bars would almost certainly qualify for a process designation using the NOVA classification system, the international system used to define degrees of food processing. 
We could reasonably argue that because some of the ingredients undergo significant industrial manufacturing, looking at you, brown rice syrup, that it might even qualify for an ultra-processed label. I am not suggesting that these are bad foods. There are a lot of problems with how this classification is used, a topic for another time. But I do take issue with how deliciously Ella positions their products as superior, natural, and more nutritious than other brands, when in reality it's a clever trick of marketing. If they were to put a traffic light label on their peanut bar, it would be red for fats and saturated fats and amber for salt and sugar, which doesn't exactly align with their projection of health. And this is the crux of it. Deliciously Ella is a food brand, not a social enterprise. They may have the veneer of caring about your health, but ultimately, they want to keep costs low and maximise profits. Meanwhile, Jenny Mullen doesn't even try to hide her disdain for what she deems to be less than perfect food. In a recent interview with Romper, she stated, Like, I don't crave that shit that Jason grew up with because I just never had it. She then details how she followed an autoimmune diet protocol, an extremely limited diet similar to paleo, purported to help reduce inflammation, a dubious claim in and of itself. I don't doubt that this is what works for her. Okay, maybe I do. But it is in no way appropriate for children. Hell, I wouldn't recommend adults do it, especially if they have a history of disordered eating and dieting, which a lot of people do. And even then, the science is shaky. Uncontrolled, unblinded, short duration, small cohort numbers. So it's confusing to me why on Mullen's Instagram, she shares kids' recipes for grain-free apple pie and grain and dairy-free blueberry scones with almond and cassava flour. I found another telling quote. When asked how she'd like her kids to eat, her response is, I obviously don't want them to eat anything that has a shelf life longer than two weeks. Get the fuck out. With ideas like this being thrown out by influencers, it comes as absolutely no surprise to me then, when I see kids in my own practice with chronic diarrhea as a result of consuming nearly three times the recommended daily amount of fibre for their age. I often see kids who are being put on diets which are largely plant-based, free of refined sugar, gluten, dairy, and low grain. It's a silent pandemic in parenting circles. Natalia Stastenko, a registered paediatric dietitian and responsive feeding specialist based in the UK, tells me when I reach out to her for comment. She is talking about the trickle-down effect of clean-eating parents to their unassuming, unconsenting children. It's hard to get a gauge of the scale of this problem. In my experience, dietary causes of common childhood ailments, even when there is a clear connection to diet, like with diarrhea and constipation, are often overlooked. And certainly the parents' attitudes and sources of nutrition information are rarely interrogated by overstretched GPs. But when I look into the literature, I find a case study describing two children and references to many more. The first was hospitalised at just six months old with seizures. He was found to have a dangerously low level of calcium in his blood. He also had rickets, a softening of the bones which can lead to pain, weakness and ultimately deformity of bones caused by a severe deficiency of vitamin D and or calcium that most of us associate with sickly Victorian kids. A retrospective analysis of his diet revealed that he was breastfed until four months old before being switched over to a homemade formula consisting of coconut water, hemp seed and sea moss. He was also fed small amounts of fruit and vegetable and he hadn't received any supplementation with vitamins or minerals. The second was a three-year-old girl who developed a goiter, 
an enlargement of the thyroid gland resulting from inadequate levels of the mineral iodine in the diet, leading to hypothyroidism, an underactive thyroid, which, if left untreated, could have devastating consequences for growth and development. Her parents were striving to feed her only the healthiest food and her diet only included plant-based, unsalted and unseasoned foods. She had never eaten any animal-based products, including meat, eggs or cow's milk, packaged foods or canned foods. She was on no vitamin supplements, report the authors of the study. Fortunately for these children, both of these conditions were resolved with adequate nutrition and supplementation. This also isn't anything new. Although this wave of overt focus on healthy eating for kids has its roots in clean eating, we saw something very similar in the 90s. Muesli belt kids was the term used to describe kids who presented with malnutrition among middle-class children. These children were thought to be at increased risk of slowed growth, anemia, learning differences, heart disease, and diabetes from a diet high in fruit and vegetables and low-fat yogurt. This stems from the misplaced belief that what is healthy for an adult is also healthy for a child. Coming back to today's brand of clean eating for kids, it's not just Mollin and Mills. Traces of clean eating show up everywhere. The popular baby-led weaning account Solid Starts is notoriously anti-sugar, promoting sugarless smash cakes for one-year-olds and giving each of the foods in their databases a nutrition ranking, which doesn't even make sense, but I'll go in on Solid Starts another time. They also have weird keto-leaning anti-carb undertones. The popular kids' food account, Kids Eat in Colour, shoves lentils in food where lentils objectively do not belong. We will never know which, if any, health and wellness influencers suffer from orthorexia or struggle with their relationship with food more broadly, unless they open up and tell us that they are struggling, as celebrity blogger Jordan Younger did with her own battle with orthorexia. But from my perspective, we can trace an unhealthy preoccupation with pure, unadulterated food and an inability to deviate from strict food rules back to influencers' power over parents who feel enormous pressure to do everything they can to guarantee their kids' health. Mollin, for instance, apparently cannot even step foot on a plane without loading up on organic lettuce, carrots and other produce and raw unsalted nuts for the journey. God forbid she eats some pretzels and drink a Coke like the rest of us. I've definitely seen many parents fall into this wellness-to-woo pipeline, with the best of intentions to take care of their kids, says Christy Harrison, an anti-diet registered dietitian and author of the forthcoming book, The Wellness Trap, where she expertly details the harms of wellness culture. One of the main ways this happens, she continues, is through social media platforms, which have powerful engagement-maximizing algorithms that can lead people from relatively benign nutrition and wellness content to dangerous misinformation, because extreme and polarizing content is what drives the most engagement on social media. Harrison goes on to describe an example from a parent she interviewed from The Wellness Trap, who showed interest in cloth diapers, nappies, and making their own baby food, who soon found they were being served recommendations for anti-vax Facebook groups. Influencers giving wellness advice can also have a huge impact, and the more extreme their diet recommendations, the more viral they tend to go, she adds, nodding to the success of accounts like Mullins and Mills that tend to be evangelical about whole plant-based foods, shunning any permutation of refined sugar, refined grains, grains in general, gluten, dairy, meat, eggs, nightshades, and, and, and. 
Parents may also have their own disordered beliefs about food and wellness that they unintentionally transmit to their kids, because black and white and orthorexic views on nutrition are incredibly common in our culture, says Christy. Some parents even fall into this wellness-to-woo pipeline when they go to integrative and functional medicine providers or other well-meaning alternative health providers who recommend restrictive diets and other potentially risky interventions, which can be a slippery slope to orthorexia. So many of us feel let down by the conventional medical system that it's completely understandable why we'd seek out other perspectives. But unfortunately, the realm of alternative and integrative medicine can sometimes cause even more harm. And this is the crux of it. Behind the polished facade of these wellness mumfluencers lies fear, anxiety, and a hypervigilance on health, to the point that it permeates out and infiltrates the subconscious of the hundreds and thousands of people who hold these women up as positive parenting role models. The cute jokes, the cool hair, the pretty exterior that tricks us into believing that what we are being sold is actually good for us is particularly pernicious. But when what is considered the pinnacle of healthiness has hallmarks of disordered eating, fear-mongering, rigidity and anxiety around food, where does this leave us? If you look at the comments on some of these influencers' posts, the apprehension is palpable. I once saw a parent ask if it was okay to give their baby scones made with baking powder because of the minuscule amount of salt it contained. Parents frequently tell me that they cook elaborate, from scratch, organic meals for their kids while just having toast for their own dinner. It's easy to see how the so-called advice from parent influencers like Mills and Mullen become a source of stress for parents who have internalized the message that the purity and healthfulness of their kid's diet is a direct reflection of the quality of their parenting or a prerequisite for good nutrition. In our public parenting age, this way of feeding kids may be seen as good parenting. And who doesn't want to be and be seen as a good parent? Katja Rowell, a responsive feeding pioneer, family doctor and author of Love Me, Feed Me explains. I unfollowed someone once when she posted a picture of her toddler drinking a green smoothie from a mason jar and wrote, Mama's doing something right. The implication, which is widespread, particularly among certain circles, is that Mama is doing something wrong if the child isn't snacking on organic seaweed. It's a tough time to parent, and feeding is one very visible part of it. But my fear, a fear that is shared by many of my colleagues, is what happens when health is prioritized over and above the feeding relationship between a parent and their child. I see pervasive anxiety, a sense that many parents feed from a place of fear and avoidance, says Katja, and it is profoundly sad to see. I personally experienced how feeding from a place of fear and avoidance robbed me of a lot of joy and connection with my child and didn't help her eating. And I know that's happening on a wide scale. So much of this suffering is preventable. The fear and anxiety this overt focus on health stirs up in parents is a somewhat generous reading of the situation. It's certainly concerning enough that we can't overlook it. But personally, I'm more concerned with the impact growing up in clean eating's long shadow has for our children, for their physical and mental health and their relationship with food and their bodies. Currently, one in four children and adolescents between the age of eight and 17 in the UK is reportedly on a diet. Among 14 to 15 year olds, moderate dieting is associated with a five time increase in eating disorder risk, which is scary enough as it is. 
but that figure jumps to an 18 times increased risk for the extreme kind of restriction associated with clean eating. 66% of children in England feel negative or very negative about their body image most of the time. It's easy to see how a relentless pursuit of health based on the purity of food and a restrictive diet is a slippery slope to something altogether unhealthy. On the flip side, we know that supporting kids to have a flexible, relaxed and intuitive relationship with food helps prevent disordered eating and supports embodiment. Just like letting our kids get down and dirty in the mud or covered head to toe in paint and glitter nurtures their imagination and creativity, Having a less than pristine diet nurtures them in ways that are beyond quantification by any measures of health. And just a footnote here, to be clear, vegan and plant-based diets in and of themselves are not the problem. A well-balanced vegan diet for children is possible with appropriate supplementation and access to a wide variety of fortified vegan alternatives. The problem is when the focus is on a rigid pursuit of purity and cleanliness, and this is true even when meat and dairy is included in the diet. So that's my essay, The Kids Standing in Clean Eating's Long Shadow. I would really love it if you could let me know if you enjoyed listening to this and if there are any other essays that you would like me to read out. All right, team, thanks for tuning in, and I'll speak to you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation, plus links we discussed in the episode and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity, and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. Although it's totally cool if you're not a parent, you're welcome to. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative, and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pricer. And the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work. And I'll catch you next week.